0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Two Notch, how we doing today? Good. Glad to be here. Uh, yeah, Aunt, thanks for letting me come teach for y'all. It's always a privilege whenever Aunt asks me and invites me here. So glad to be with y'all this morning. And as Ant read, we're going to be in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. That's where we'll be this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And while y'all are turning there, I'm just going to tell you the main idea of the sermon today. So that way, you know, if you doze off or if you get confused, like, what's this dude talking about? I'm just giving you the cheat code right now, okay? The main idea for this morning is that obedience leads to joy. Obedience leads to joy. So prior to uh, me working at Midtown, a little background on me. I was doing college ministry in Kentucky with my wife. We were doing uh, working with an organization, Campus Crusade for Christ, also called Crew. And my wife had a heart to reach out to fraternity and sorority students at our campus. No one was really doing that. She came from a sorority and became a Christian through someone witnessing to her in a sorority. So she had a, a huge heart for this to start something at our campus. And I don't know if you can just tell just by looking at me like I am not from a fraternity. Like I had no experience whatsoever. But what I did, I went out as soon as we started, said we were going to start this ministry. I bought a couple polo shirts, which like I'm not a polo shirt guy. I'm a T-shirt guy. Uh, I bought some like boat shoes and I kind of like blended in and man, by God's grace for a few years, we were doing that. And I got to lead some Bible studies in fraternity homes and saw some guys come to know Jesus. And some of the most exciting, fruitful ministry seasons were during my time working with fraternity guys. At the same time, a lot of heartbreak and a lot of discouraging conversations had I had during that time working with those students. And I remember I would be meeting with a guy and talking about Jesus or the Bible, and they would just nod their heads and say, well, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. You know, I, I grew up in church and, you know, I got baptized. And But honestly, man, all this stuff about like following Jesus and obeying Jesus and sharing my faith with people, like, hey, man, uh, no hard feelings or anything, but like, No, thanks. I'm kind of, that's not why I joined a fraternity. Honestly, like, that's not why I'm in college. I'm not here to follow Jesus and obey Jesus. I'm here to have fun. I'm here to live my best life right now and just do what I can in these four years to just maximize my happiness as much as I can. And time and time again, I would have conversations like that. And in the back of my mind, I I couldn't help but think uh, first, I mean, honestly, I, I kind of get what they were coming from. I, I get, yeah, you are in college. And yeah, following Jesus is tough. Like, I, I get that. I understand that. But then two, I couldn't help but wonder if, if I was communicating, not just in my words, but just in the way I talked about my life. If I was leading an example of a life filled with joy following Christ, I wonder that. Did they see that? Did they see me living a life full of joy and love in Christ? Now, to be clear, uh, the Christian life certainly has its fair share of suffering and hardship and trials, no doubt. But what I want us to see today is that even in the midst of the trials and even in the midst of the pain and the hardship, that there is so much joy to be found following Jesus. So Paul starts this uh, starts this section in Philippians 2. Uh, It starts with the word, therefore, and it's connecting us back to his train of thought in Philippians 2, verses one through 11, which Ant preached last week, talking about how Jesus is God. And he took on the form of a servant and he lowered himself, humbled himself to the point of death. He conquered the grave. Now he sits at the right hand of the father. And now he's stemming off of that. And then we get to verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, work out your salvation. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. It's not this idea like we obey in order to gain God's love and favor for us. Rather, through faith in Jesus, we have all the love, all the favor from God, the Father that we could ever possibly have. And now in light of what's been made available to us, now work it out. Work out that salvation experience in your life through obedience to Christ, what he has made available to you in him. The scriptures say that if you're in Christ, you are a new creation, that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, giving, giving us new desires and thoughts. And because Jesus has conquered the grave and you've placed your faith in him, that that spirit power is now made available to you. So it's asking yourself, okay, if the tomb is empty, if Jesus has really conquered the grave, how's that going to impact today? How's that going to impact tomorrow? If Jesus has conquered the grave, how does that impact my relationships? How am I going to bless people, forgive people, treat people with kindness and respect because of who Jesus is, because he has conquered the grave? It's because now that Jesus has conquered the grave, how I spend my time and how I spend my money is going to look different because Jesus is king of the universe. And I want to work out my salvation to experience joy in him. Because I'm a parent, how am I gonna parent differently because Jesus has conquered the grave? If the tomb is empty and Jesus is ruling and reigning, how can I work out this salvation in my life today so that I can experience the ruling and reigning love of Jesus in my life right now? To not just push past Jesus, but to press into Jesus more and more. How can I lean into his spirit more and more today? This is what Paul is getting at in verse 13. He says, it is God who works in you. So notice, we don't work for our salvation. We work out our salvation. And ultimately, as we are working out our salvation, who's doing the heavy lifting? It's God. It's the Holy Spirit. So even as I work out my salvation, it's ultimately not me behind it all. It is God working in me and through me to experience the joy that he has available to me. Uh, This is a very silly illustration, but the way I used to talk about it with college guys when I was doing college ministry. Uh, You ever been to the gym and you see those dudes in the back who are all swole, who like the only shirts they wear, like they don't have sleeves, you know what I'm talking about? They're like over by the bench press and they're grunting. They want you to know that they are there in the gym. They're not the silent types. They are grunting, letting people know that they're lifting weights right now. But these guys who are who are bench pressing? Who want to see growth? Who want to see more strength? What these guys do? They they need a spotter with them, and this spotter is this person who's who's stronger than them, who's standing over them. And at a certain point, they're they're putting in their reps, but they can't do it on their own, and they have to like somehow signal for help. And then that's when the spotter comes in, lifts the lifts the weights for them because they can't do it in their own strength. <laughs> and whenever I would talk to college students about it, I'd be like, so that's kind of what the Christian life is like when you think about it. It's impossible to live it out in your own strength and your own power. And the only way you can possibly do it is by asking the spirit for help constantly, daily hour by hour, moment by moment, asking the spirit for help and the spirit who's so much stronger than us. He is the one doing the heavy lifting. As we work out our salvation, it's the spirit and the heavy work, but we still have to go to the gym, so to speak. We still got to show up. We got to put in the reps day in and day out through our obedience, wherever we are. And this is our call as followers of Jesus. The call is obedience. The call, is, the call to obedience is ultimately a call to joy. So in the passage this morning, we see there are really four joys that are made available to us when we follow after Christ. The first one is God's joy. God's joy. We see this in verse 12. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So why do we obey Paul says we do it for the good pleasure of God, for experiencing his delight, to experience the smile of our heavenly father upon us. Elsewhere in scripture, we're told for those who are in Christ, we are adopted sons and daughters of the king, that we are his treasured possession. He's gone to great lengths to redeem us. And when we follow after him, when we obey his commands, we experience his delight. Parents in the room, y'all probably know what I'm talking about, how good it feels, how it brings a smile to your soul when you see your kids obey. Isn't it nice? I love it. So right now I have three kids, ages six, four, and two. Uh, Our two-year-old's turning three tomorrow, but right now, man, she's in the throes, the terrible twos. She's going to be a three-nager any day now. And We have this little habit where before I go to work, before I get in my car to drive to the office, I'll get my my keys and my phone. I'll say, all right, kids, daddy's going to work, hug, kiss, love you guys, come on. And they all kind of like grouchy, just get away from the breakfast table, like, yeah, yeah, okay. But our daughter, our two-year-old, she has figured out at what point I start grabbing my keys and my wallet. She knows the cue, and before I even say anything, she just darts from off the breakfast table and just comes running, saying, Daddy, I love you. I'll see you later. And it, is, it brings such a delight to my soul. And I'm looking at my wife and we're both just beaming, just so proud and just smiling so much in this, in this joy and this laughter to see our daughter obey. And when we obey God, this is what happens. He lights up. When we obey God, he smiles. His heart is filled up with such tender love and joyous laughter over you to see you obeying him. He delights in your obedience. He's not or angry, but he loves you. And when we choose the road of of obedience in whatever situation, whether that's choosing purity over lust or generosity over comfort or humility over pride, we access that divine love into our lives. We obey to experience God's joy, but there's so much more. It brings us to point two, we obey for the joy of the world. That brings us to point two, the world's joy. It's that our aim as followers of Jesus is that the world might see our joy and be so moved and compelled by the love of Jesus that they may in turn come to faith in Jesus and experience that same joy for themselves. This is what Paul is getting at in verses 14 and 15. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, looking back at verse 14, Paul says, do nothing without grumbling or complaining. And I get, you could almost preach a whole sermon, probably a whole sermon series on just that idea, right? Do all things without grumbling or complaining and notice the connection he makes When we complain and grumble, we in turn are not able to shine as lights in the world. Verse 14 and 15, do not grumble or complain so that you can shine as lights. But the reverse is true too. When we complain, we cannot shine as lights to the world. I can't help but think of the Exodus story in the Old Testament. Here is God so supernaturally at work in the lives of the Israelites. He has freed them from the tyranny of the Egyptians after being in slavery for hundreds of years. God supernaturally shows up, right? Provides for them. He rescues them. God wipes out their enemies literally right before their eyes. And you would think, In light of that, in light of the fact that God is on their side, this should be some of the most joy-filled, happiest people on the face of the planet because God is on their side, right? You'd expect that. That's not what you see, though. What you see every time is, hey, Moses, come on. We're hungry. You just let us out here to starve? Is that what you did? Hey, Moses, I I know God showed up, gave this manna, comes from the ground, uh, falls from the sky every day, it's cool and all, but like, we need some variety, come on. <laughs> hey, Moses, we don't have an idol to worship like the rest of the nations, what, what gives? Moses, why'd you lead us out here to die in the first place? And on and on, the complaining and the grumbling goes on, which tells you something about who they thought their God was, right? All their complaining, all their grumbling, it revealed something in them of who they thought God was really like. You see, when we complain, it tells the world our God is weak. When we complain, it tells the world our God is weak. Deep down, we're saying, God, you're not looking after me. You're not looking over me. God, you don't love me. God, it seems like you've forgotten about me, so I need to take things into my own hands. And yet, Paul says, our mission is to shine as lights to the world. It's connected to our obedience and our gratitude Your gratitude, in other words, affects our mission. Your gratitude affects our mission. The scriptures say that through our obedience, through our joy, through our working out our salvation day in and day out, when we do this slowly over time in gratitude and in obedience, we shine as lights brighter and brighter to the world around us, showing to the world what true joy and what true life is like in Christ. I'll share with you a story that comes to mind. I don't normally do premarital counseling for couples in our church, but uh, when I do, I'm glad to do it. And I remember this was about a year and a half ago. I was assigned this couple to do their their premarital counseling. They had been around our church for a while. They love Jesus. They've been in a life group for a long time. They're getting married in six to eight months. This is my first time meeting with them. And in the course of our conversation over Zoom, mind you, because, you know, y'all remember Zoom? Mm, No, thanks. Uh, We're we're doing this premarital conversation, and I find out towards the end that they've been living together for a while. And I thought, great, you know, I don't do premarital, and the one that I do get, it's like, this is going to blow up. Okay, So, (laughs) so I say, okay, all right, let's talk more about that next week, let's schedule something, and during that week, I am praying and trying to figure out how am I gonna tell them that this is not God's design for them. And I'm talking with the other pastors. And so I'm praying into this conversation for for God's favor, for them to open their eyes and to wanna obey Jesus and and not live together prior to marriage. And I will just go ahead and say, (laughs) the track record for these conversations don't tend to go over really well at all. So there was that kind of looming over me. So we get into the conversation and then I say, yeah, uh, let's talk about that. Uh, that's not God's design for you. God's design is that when you are married, that you are one flesh. And that means one in everything once you're married. And that includes like uh, one in your finances and one in the marriage bed and one roof. And that all of that is, is for marriage. But that's not God's design while you're engaged. You're separate for right now. And they just kind of nodded politely and they just said, yeah, you know, we figured he'd probably say something like that, but, you know, we kind of want to keep doing what we're doing. And and I said this at the end, I said, okay, I, I encourage you to meet with your life group, pray about this. We're going to follow back up in a week, but I just want you to know this as to uh, whether you choose to obey this and move out or not and do your own thing whichever you decide, I want you to know it's going to set a trajectory for the rest of your life in following Jesus. So no pressure, (laughs) but let's talk about that next week. So, uh, I'm, I'm just kind of like praying that, you know, Jesus, I know these conversations don't tend to work out, but please, you know, do something. And then we, have that conversation over Zoom. And they said, we've been praying about it and we've been talking with our life group about it. And they said this, they said, even though uh, we don't want to, and even though we don't fully understand it, uh, we trust you and we want Jesus for our marriage and we're thankful to our life group and how much they love us, so we're gonna move out. And I remember there's like, you know, A handful of amazing, incredible things where I saw God just supernaturally show up. And that was one of them. And I was just so thankful that six months later, I got to marry them and how they loved Jesus and they had been living separately that entire time. And it would have been so easy for them, I think, to just grumble and complain, you know? They could have easily just said, Yeah, of course, we knew you were going to say this. So peace out to the whole Midtown thing, life group thing. We're out. That could have easily gone down, or they could have said, yeah, fine, we'll be separate, but we don't want to and whatever, and we, we just can't, we hate all this. It would have been so easy for them to complain and grumble, but they chose obedience, and they chose gratitude, and that action, they were able to make Jesus so plain and known to their friends and family members at the wedding, saying that they did the hard thing, because of Jesus. Two-notch fam, my question for you is what might it look like for you to bring that same sort of Jesus-centered joy and obedience into your mission field so that the world might hear the gospel? So in your workplace, when everyone's complaining about the hard hours or the taxing boss, you can say, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, we do have a tough boss, and I'm glad to be here. I'm thankful that God is providing for me through this job. I'm thankful to have a job. I'm thankful that I have this boss in my life so that I can just die to my pride a little bit more. Or when you're with other parents, for the parents in the room, when you're with other parents, it's really easy to complain and grumble about your kids, hypothetically. Hypothetically speaking, I would never, but hypothetically. And what would it look like for you to say, yeah, you're right, I I don't sleep that much either. And Yeah, I don't really have much alone time right now, but man, I am thankful to God for these kids. God is good. They are a blessing in my life. And yeah, I don't sleep a lot and I feel physically weak, but I know that even in my weakness, that's when God really meets in my life and shows off his strength in me. Or when you're with your friends, it's easy to complain, about your spouse or roommate or make a comment at their expense. And yet, because of the joy set before you, you can choose to speak words of honor and encouragement towards them because you're thankful to have them in your life. As followers of Jesus, we choose gratitude over grumbling. As followers of Jesus, we choose gratitude over grumbling, putting the gospel on display in our words and our attitudes to make much of Jesus. And when we choose obedience, we give the opportunity for the world to share in this joy. And there's more joy that Paul goes on to say when we choose obedience, we give opportunities for our leaders to share in this joy. Look back at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, holding fast to the word of life, So that in the day of Christ, I may be poured out that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Paul says that he is a drink offering, which goes back to at that time, whenever people would offer sacrifices on the altar, they would pour a bottle of wine on the altar as a way to say, I've spent it all. I've given it all, everything is for you, God. And Paul is saying to the church, "When it comes to y'all, I've poured out everything. I'm given my life for you all so that y'all might look more like Jesus. And everything Paul has done and has given his life towards is so that churches would get planted and God's kingdom would get spread and that disciples would be built up who would love and obey Jesus. And when that happens and he sees it happening in the church in Philippi, he's able to see that and rejoice because when you're able to see gospel fruit after all of the hard work and all the labor and all the prayers, when you see gospel fruit, it just grows your joy more and more. I can't help but think about uh, last Easter service that we had at our downtown church, maybe a month, two months ago. uh, We had a guy who was coming around our church. His name was Mitch. And Mitch was in his mid 80s and a professed atheist. And he started coming around our church and getting involved in a life group. And all of us, literally for years on end, hundreds of us, his life group leaders, his pastors, so many of us praying for him to come to know Jesus. And for years and years on end, there was like no budging whatsoever. Someone would have a spiritual conversation with him. He would just shut it down. Someone would offer him a book to read about why Jesus is awesome, and he would in turn like read it, not really be moved, and then offer a book about his beliefs. You know, it didn't really go that well for the longest time. And so many people, all of his leaders, all praying for him until uh, one day after years and years of this, Mitch Loki says to his life group during uh, when they're catching up on life or whatever. He says to his life group, hey, so this weekend, I think I'm going to take communion. Life group leader's like, why (laughs) though? Mitch, uh, why, why do you want to do that? And Mitch, again, just really low key says, well, I'm a Christian now. I believe Jesus has conquered death. I believe he's forgiven me my sins. So I'm a Christian now. And cut to, some uh, sometime later, his whole life group and pastors are around him around a pool and we baptize him. And he's like in his late eighties at this point. And you want to know the reaction of all his leaders? So much joy. So much laughter, so much like just tears and clapping and rejoicing because that's what heaven, I think, was doing at that time. God, the father standing up from the, his throne and just clapping and rejoicing and angels singing and celebrating. His leaders were rejoicing, just so, so much rejoicing after all of that hard work, all that. They finally got to see that. Your leaders, they pour themselves out like a drink offering to see you all look more and more like Jesus each day. Uh, Your pastor, Aunt, the deacons, Catherine, your life group leader, they are pouring themselves out to see Jesus at work in your life so that your obedience might lead to joy and they might rejoice in you with all of it. So, if I can just give you a quick practical right now, a quick takeaway make sure you encourage your leaders today. Make sure you encourage them. This week, sometimes we can assume that they know, but maybe that's the case and and maybe not, but let's not give your leaders any shred of doubt in their minds that you're thankful for them, that Jesus is growing you because of their role in your life. So don't be shy and don't delay it. Send, Send that email, send that text, write that note, tell them about how you've seen Jesus at work in your life because of them, or because of someone in ministry uh, pouring into you. Because I'll just tell you, as someone who has been in ministry, who's been in ministry for a long time, it's really easy to forget that. It's really easy to forget that. In my office, I have thank you cards just up against the wall that uh, I just need visible, tangible reminders that Jesus is at work. I'm so thankful for that. You know, if you really just like really want to go for broke and just, you know, blow your leader's minds, what you could do is even say, and Aunt doesn't know I'm going to say this, uh, to just say, hey, uh, I'm really thankful for you. Can I like, take you to lunch, my treat. And I just want to encourage you and tell you all the ways I'm seeing Jesus at work in our church family. That will blow their minds. If, if your leader is like discouraged, it's like, yeah, I'll do that. And you know, they might've been on the verge of quitting ministry. They will go like another decade if that happens. So just, just letting that, you know, pray about it. However the spirit leads. Right. Uh, and let me just say this, uh, two notch fam between you and me. Uh, Between our family of churches, I think y'all are leading the way in terms of honoring and encouraging your leaders Uh, in our family of churches by far and away. The way you show honor to your pastors, to your pastor and your leaders is really incredible. And I know it's a sin, so I'm not really meaning this, but I kind of mean this, that over at downtown in Lexington, we're a little jealous. We're a little jealous of you guys, but keep it up and continue to lead the way, set the bar, set the example for how our churches should follow y'all in terms of honoring and encouraging your leaders. Last thing, we see in this text, we saw how obedience leads to God's joy, the world's joy, your leaders' joy. Lastly, we see our obedience leads to our joy. It leads to our joy. Paul wraps it up like this in verse 18. He says, "Likewise, you also should be glad" And rejoice with me. Our obedience leads to our joy. You see, in our world today, uh, we hate restrictions. And we hate being told what to do. And I think one of the greatest lies that Satan has ever fed to us to deceive the world is to make us think that God's commands are simply because God is withholding something from us, that we're just supposed to do X, Y, or Z because he doesn't want us to be happy. But church, hear me. God is not trying to take something from you, but through his commands, he's trying to give you something He's trying to give you more of himself. He's trying to give you more joy. He's trying to give you more life through his commands. He's created us and he's created life to be designed and to operate according to how he sees fit. It's for your deeper joy. And our obedience leads to joy. When we understand this and live this out, we experience a deeper victory in our lives. We experience deeper victory over sin when we realize God's commands are for our joy because you begin to learn and see that God's not out to get you. He's not out to withhold from you. In his commands, they are opportunities to grab and take hold of eternal life all the more. And yes, obedience might be painful and it might be hard and obedience might even lead to deeper suffering. But you know what's on the the other side of that? Because the tomb is empty, because Jesus has conquered death, you know what's on the side, the other side of all that hardship and suffering is joy. Joy is on the other side of it. More and more joy, both in this life and the life to come. And this is the way of Jesus, and this is what he has called us to, to pick up our own cross, to give our lives away, to die to ourselves and give our lives away because that's what Jesus has done for us. Hebrews 12, one through two puts it like this: says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and every sin that clings so closely. So whether that's our complaining, whether that's our grumbling, or whether that's our apathy, or our pride, or division, or whatever, let's lay it all aside. Keep reading and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's be a people who run after joy. Let's be a people who chase after joy, who run after obedience, who say yes to Jesus and no to the things of this world, who say yes to encouraging our leaders, who say yes to being in community together, who say yes to pressing more and more into Jesus. In verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice that it says, for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured all of it for the joy. For the joy set before him, Christ went to the cross and for the joy set before him, Christ endured our suffering. For the joy set before him, Christ bore our sin. And for the joy set before him, he was forsaken by his heavenly father. And for the joy set before him, Christ rolled away the stone. And for the joy set before him, Christ walked out of the grave And for the joy set before him, the world, the flesh, and the devil had no dominion over him. And for the joy set before him, he is now exalted and has entered into the eternal joy of his heavenly father forever and ever and ever. And this fam is the same path we are called to follow for the joy set before us. For the joy set before us, we pick up our cross. And for the joy set before us, we die to ourselves. And for the joy set before us, we give our lives away in obedience so that in the process, we might be a people of light shining our joy in Colombia now and in the life to come when we get to worship King Jesus face to face in his heavenly kingdom forever and ever. Amen? Amen. That's what's awaiting us when we obey his commands that joy is made possible. Let's run after it. Let's chase after joy.